Father, make this true. Lord, make this song a prayer in our hearts that actually reflects the desire of our hearts, God. Lord, to, to stand together as brothers and sisters and declare that you are enough. Lord, make that true in our hearts. Lord, you are enough. Over and above the comforts we seek, the escape we seek, the idolatry we turn to. Jesus, you are sufficient to meet the needs of our heart. Lord, make that cry true in our hearts. Amen. To turn away from the world and toward you and find the satisfaction for our soul where, where it actually can be done in your gospel, in your person, in communion with you. Oh, you are so good. We love you, Jesus. Be with us this morning. Amen. Amen. Woo, what a time. It is a joy to be with you today, Emmanuel. I'm telling you guys, getting locked in your house with children with COVID is a great way to appreciate the reality of biblical community. Oh man, I am stoked to be here today. Uh, not just because I'm actually out of my house and amongst other adults, uh, although that is part of it. <laughs> but no, I'm, I'm genuinely excited to come together to worship. I'm excited for what we're going to be talking about today. We are taking a break from Acts for this Sunday to talk about a specific uh, reality and need in the life of our church as we move forward in our, our replant together. So today we're going to be talking about the offices of the church if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3, I know some of you in the room are like, this sounds like the most boring Sunday I could have come to. And the other half were like, wait, the offices? The rooms downstairs? <laughs> Stick with me. We will we'll get there. I actually think God has something really cool for us today. When we use that term, the offices of the church, we're actually talking about, I'm going to give you more $5 seminary words, we're actually talking about church polity which is a way of saying the governance of the church, the way we organize and lead the church. So when we refer to the offices, we're referring to two specific titles, tasks, jobs that are given to leaders in the early church in the scripture. This is the office of the eldership or the pastors and the office of the deacons. So the, the elders and the deacons, we're going to be talking about that today. And again, I know as I'm explaining it, you're going, this is actually sounding more boring the longer you go. But I promise you, I think God has something really good for us in this today. And, and, and here's what I think that is. See, the offices of the church are a gift from God to the church. There's something that God has given his family, given his children, because he loves them. And we're going to talk about this, right? But the, the, the primary function of the pastors, the elders, is to, to serve their church through leading it. They, they care for it like shepherds, Right? And we know that we actually only have one true shepherd. His name is Jesus. And so when he gives us the gift of pastors, it's because it, it, we get to have some of the ministry and love of Jesus with flesh and bones in our lives. And the ministry of the deacons, the deacons lead out in their church by serving their church, by meeting practical needs. And as we all know, there is one who truly came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, our, our King Jesus is the ultimate servant. And so we get to experience his care and his presence with skin and bones through the deacons of the church. 
So we're going to talk about that, this idea of why God gave us this gift of these offices, why we think that's important in our local church. And I'm going to land us on just three kind of ideas, the three practical things that I think the offices remind us of in the gospel. They, they remind us that we're not in this thing, this faith journey alone. They remind us that, that, that we're actually being called to grow in holiness. And they remind us that we're headed somewhere together. So we're going to walk through all those three pieces. We're going to get there via 1 Timothy 3. So if you want to read with me, and then we'll pray together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in the first verse, we read this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as a deacon if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, I hope to come see you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Hear this church, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for the gift of coming together. Thank you for beautiful music and declarations of your gospel and time and prayer and fellowship together and all the gifts that we receive in this space. Holy Spirit, as we take a few minutes to reflect on your word, to consider this specific aspect of your gospel, of the life of your church, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be our preacher today, that you would speak through your word, that you would convict us, that for those of us in this room who who you are maybe calling up to a next step of obedience, Lord, I ask that you would prick and push and prod and move us to greater levels of holiness and obedience and dependence on you. And Lord, above all, I pray that we would leave today having heard from you, having met with you, having done business with you. We love you, Jesus. We trust you for this. We pray it in your name. Amen. So, as I said at the beginning, right? We're, we're talking about this idea of these two offices, these two kind of leadership positions in the church, elders and deacons, how they're a gift. We're going we're gonna to walk through each one. Paul, through Timothy here, gives instructions, and, and we're going to dig through some of the context here, because I think this will actually illuminate a text. You know, when we get into these texts that are lists, it's really easy to kind of zone out for the rest of the list, you know what I'm saying? Like, as they're moving through these different phrases. So I'm going to hopefully put this in a little bit of context for us 
in a way that I think will help this come alive as we think about not just what this means in this text, in this context, but what this means for us at Emmanuel. So if you were here last week, Pastor Jim took us through Acts 20. This really cool text. Paul's on the tail end of his third missionary journey, making his way back to Jerusalem, and he skips past Ephesus, right? He's making his way, and if you've been in Acts with us, you know that's kind of a big deal because Paul spent three years ministering in Ephesus, like really pouring his heart and soul into this church. But when he's on his way back, he's literally in a hurry. And he's like, if I stop there, it will take a while. So he skips past Ephesus, but then sends word back to Ephesus and asks for their elders to come meet him. And so the elders leave Ephesus and come and meet him on the road. And there's this really beautiful scene where Paul encourages and admonishes these men before sending them back to ministry in a church that he loves, a church where he spent multiple years ministering. And if you guys recall, he says something really heavy to them. In verse 28 of chapter 20 of Acts, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And even from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So Paul spent three years ministering in this church, and when he's giving them these final instructions, built into his instructions is, look out. I see the potential for a disaster in your church. Be careful, elders. Because when I leave, there are going to arise false teachers. And he uses this phrase, wolves will come to devour the sheep. It's intense, right? And he even goes so far as to say, I'm looking at you guys. Some of you have some unresolved stuff, and it could kill this church. That's intense. Well, what happens about eight years later is as Paul finishes his journey, he makes his way back to Jerusalem. These are spoilers for where we're going in Acts, by the way. He'll get arrested, make his way to Rome, and the book of Acts ends with him in Rome. And what church history tells us is that he didn't actually die in that last trip in Rome, and then he was able to leave and go on at least one other missionary journey. But eventually, in the early 60s, of the first century, Paul landed back in Rome, serving as a pastor of the Roman church alongside the apostle Peter, where he was martyred in the mid to late 60s by the emperor Nero. And in the last couple of years of his life, he wrote these three letters to a couple guys he had discipled and raised up in ministry. This is first and second Timothy and Titus, what we call the pastoral epistles. Epistle just meaning the letters, right? The letters Paul wrote. We call them the pastoral epistles because instead of writing a letter to a church, right, like Ephesians or Philippians, Paul wrote these letters to these individual men, Timothy and Titus, two young men that he had raised up as pastors and sent to go do specific ministry tasks in a specific context. Titus was sent to the church on the island of Crete, but Timothy was sent to the church at Ephesus. Some seven, eight, nine years after what we read in Acts 20, the church at Ephesus has gone down the drain. And we don't know what happened. We don't know fully what went bad. But whatever it was, it looks like Paul had eyeballs on it ahead of time, right? And by the time 1 Timothy rolls around, the rest of the larger churches are noticing how corrupt 
the church at Ephesus is becoming, and multiple churches from Rome and from Jerusalem and from Antioch send leaders to try and help relaunch, restart the church at Ephesus and get it back on track. So Paul sends Timothy. A little later, the apostle John will go and join Timothy, and they'll minister and serve together. John actually stays at the church at Ephesus until he's exiled to the island of Patmos. But right now, what we see in this letter is kind of the front lines of this desperate ministry. Paul has sent Timothy to serve this church that is circling the drain, and he sends this letter after him to encourage him in the work. He hears about what's going on in Ephesus. He hears about some of the specific issues Ephesus is dealing with, and he writes to Timothy to encourage him. And we can guess, by the way, that the ministry context in Ephesus is pretty brutal. If you read First and Second Timothy, the way that Paul encourages him, you can tell this boy's going to bat against some hard stuff in this church. He spends the whole first chapter of 1 Timothy just affirming Timothy and going, look, man, I know you're dealing with a lot of doubts right now. I know you want to quit. You are good. God has called you to this. In Christ, you are able. You can withstand this. Fight the good fight. Finish the work. Do this. You got this. And then he goes and starts giving specific instruction on some of the issues of the church at Ephesus. And if you read through First and Second Timothy, you will see him cover a lot of very specific ministry issues. Paul tells Timothy that this church in Ephesus needs to engage in intentional prayer ministry, specifically praying over governmental leaders who are actively oppressing them. They need to get their men to spend more time praying and less time being drunk and angry, which generally that's a pretty good, pretty good piece of advice. They need to get their women to, to reject the idolatry of public image and worshiping their self and how they look and how they're viewed and instead focus on their spiritual growth. They need to reject false teachers who are adding man-made traditions and restrictions to the teaching of the word, ignoring the plain teaching of scripture in favor of things that were more culturally acceptable in Ephesus. They need to dig deep into the word and trust it for instruction beyond anything else. They need to disciple the older men in the church away from abusing alcohol and toward making Jesus look good because their abuse of alcohol is making him look bad in the community. They need to disciple young widows who are taking advantage of the church's benevolence ministry to stop doing that. Seems pretty simple. This is my favorite. They need to pay their pastors well. You should go read that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, you need to disciple slaves and servants to honor their masters and their bosses to the glory of God. And above all, he comes back to this theme over and over and over. They need to reject the idolatry of comfort and wealth and earthly stuff. There's a lot this church is going through, and I'm sure none of that relates to how we understand our cultural context, right? We're light years ahead of what Ephesus was struggling with. Sarcasm, if you didn't catch that. Smack in the middle of all this instruction, you get our text. And in our text, Paul instructs Timothy to appoint good leaders for this church, specifically to install godly elders and deacons. I think it's vital for us to put our text into this context. Because it speaks to what Paul talks about in the qualifications, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll talk about that piece. But I think it's important to know, Paul's not speaking about leadership for the church in a vacuum. He's speaking about leadership in this church in the context of seeing what bad leadership does to a church. 
You know, he calls out some of these guys by name and says, they have shipwrecked their faith. It's bad news, right? And it has taken this church on a really bad road. False teaching, poor leadership, sinful fleshly people who are making Jesus look bad, abusing the ministry of the church. I mean, wow. And part of Paul's solution for this problem is directly attacking the sinful aspects of the church, yes, but also installing, setting godly leadership. He sees this as a necessary part of the solution to the problems this church is facing. I mean, the very fact that he sends Timothy, right, speaks to the fact that he puts weight on leadership in the church. Paul puts a lot of weight on godly leadership. So let's look at that. Two specific kinds of leaders he talks about. We'll start with the elders, and then we'll talk about deacons. And I'm going to move through this part relatively quick, because I want to get past some of the heady stuff and more to some of the fun stuff. So there are three words in the New Testament that all point to the same office when we use the term elder. There is the word we read in English as elder. This is the word presbyteros, where we get the English word presbytery or presbyterian. There's the word overseer, episcopos. This is where we get the English word for episcopal or bishop, but that's through way of Latin, so don't worry about that part. And shepherd, or the word poimen, which is where we get the English word pastor. Now, even though there is nuance in meaning to each of these three words, the New Testament uses them pretty much synonymously. And the evidence for this is the text we read last week in Acts 20, where Paul is speaking to the elder board and uses all three terms in one conversation with them. Presbyteros refers to someone who has authority. Episcopos refers to someone who administrates or someone who supervises. Employment literally just means shepherd. It's someone who cares for sheep, right? Uh, and the idea is there is that it's not literal. It's, it's an analogy, right? Like Christ is our shepherd, and so he sets up under shepherds. The work of a pastor is similar to the work of a shepherd because... Sheep are dumb and mean. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't mean that, I promise. Woo. Um, anyway, uh, shepherd is actually the, the most common word picture used to describe the office. But it's important to say that piece because the, the terms are used interchangeably. When you read them, overseer, elder, pastor, we're talking about the same thing. And you can sum it up like this. Elders serve the church by way of their leadership. This is the, the central way all Christians are called to serve Christ and serve the church. But elders, the way they serve the church is through their leadership, through their care, their direction, those sorts of things. So jump back into 1 Timothy 3 with me. Paul opens the section on elders by telling us that it's a good thing for someone to desire to serve the church in this ministry. And I think it's important to say that piece. I love this, and I want to make sure we mention it. If God puts on your heart a desire to love and serve the church through leadership, that's a good thing. I mean, that can be an expression of your arrogance and pride. But I'm telling you, as we see, the church needs good leaders. If God puts that on your heart, I would invite you, encourage you, come tell the pastors of our church. We'd love to be in that journey of discernment with you. We would love to help train you up and develop you and move you towards obedience to your call. To, to, to desire to serve God's church through leadership is a good thing, but it is a weighty thing. It's something we take seriously. It's something we want to be careful with because we see what happens when you put people in leadership who aren't ready. They make shipwreck of their faith and they crash churches into wreaths. And it's bad. 
After this, Paul lists 15 qualifications for the office of elder. Now, I'm going to list them really briefly, but it's important to note something here. This list is contextual, not exhaustive. And we can know that for certain because when Peter talks about elders in his letter and when Paul talks about them again to Titus, the list of qualifications is different. They don't give the same list each time. And the reason is because he's giving a contextualized list of qualifications that, by the way, if you go down this list, what you'll see is that they line up pretty spot on with the specific ethical and holiness issues Paul's talking about in this church, in this letter. And then we'll get to a reason why that is in just a second. There are two kind of overarching or universal or chief qualifications for eldership that we do need to give careful attention to. But before we talk about those, let's look at this whole list. Paul tells Timothy that he needs to look for men who are above reproach, faithful in their marriage, clear-headed, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, managing their household well, not a recent convert, and well thought of by outsiders. Whew, that's a lot. And again, you could go down that list and put it next to an outline of First and Second Timothy and just see how basically Paul has picked out the major sin issues in this church and said, your elders need to not be falling into those things. They need to be good at all of these things you guys are bad at. That's going to be really important. And it comes back to the overarching, the chief qualification for eldership that we see, which is that they're above reproach. Essentially, what he's saying is, pick men whose faith is exemplary. And I mean that term literally. You know, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And he's telling Timothy, appoint men as elders so you can say the same thing about them. And guys, I'm not going to speak to myself in this, but I, I do want to speak to this for a second because I think this is a beautiful gift God has given our church. When I think about our pastors, I can, I can joyfully and confidently look you guys in the eye and say, follow Christ as Jim follows Christ. Look to Jesse and see how he loves Jesus and love Jesus like that. I mean, care, I mean, care about your faith the way Craig cares about his faith. If you guys emulate the pastors God's put in front of you, you'll do all right. Because God has given you guys some exemplary godly men as pastors. What a stinking gift. I love that. That is the chief qualification of an elder, is that if you model your faith after that person, you'll be doing all right. Which, by the way, is why it's so intense. It's why it's such a big deal that you put a gate around that office. Because the person who comes up here and opens up the Bible and says, thus says the Lord, is carrying authority and telling you how to live your life, speaking into the intimate details of your life. And if you put someone up here who's not ready or able to do that, it will destroy them and destroy you. It will poison your view of your faith, poison your view of the church. And above all, it makes Jesus look bad. Because he's holy, and he's loving, and he's kind, and he's perfect. And he doesn't hurt people and shipwreck faith. But bad leaders make it look like he does. The second thing we want to look at is that elders have to be able to teach. The reason I list that one is for two reasons. First off, it's, it's one of the only ones that's mentioned every time eldership is mentioned in the New Testament. But it's also specifically one that Paul mentions here for elders and not for deacons, which is important, right? It shows us kind of some of the difference 
between the two roles that pastors must be able to teach. And we I just talked about that, right? You need qualified godly men who can come up here and open up the word and not say, thus says Sam, but say, hey, come hang out with me. Look at God's word. Let's walk in here together and look around and see what we see and guide you to the truth of God's word. That doesn't mean they have to be an amazing public speaker. It doesn't mean they have to be trained in stand-up comedy. It doesn't mean they need to be dynamic with multimedia presentations. But they need to be able to teach the word. You need to be able to sit with this person in the Bible and walk away understanding the gospel in your life more clearly than when you walked in. It's important. I'll tell you guys. You can have someone who's not a great public speaker, but here's the amazing thing. The Word of God is living and active, and he doesn't need public speaking skills or comedy skills to cut between bone and marrow and curse your heart and convict you and grow you in holiness. And you can have someone who's an amazing public speaker who makes you laugh and feel interested and entertained and engaged and challenged and yet be led toward heresy and led toward a shipwreck. Able to teach is not able to stand up here and entertain, right? Paul has something to say about speakers who come up and tickle people's ears. It's about taking this word and opening it up and saying, walk in here with me and let's look at this together. Let's see what God has for you today. There's a promise he does. So men who are above reproach, men who are able to teach. It's a high bar we set for elders. And we have to put a big, tall, strong, locked gate in front of that office. Take that seriously. We have to be careful about who we give that kind of authority in our lives. And some of you are going... Yeah, I need to get out with you more. <laughs> I need to spend more time with you. We let you up there pretty quick. Uh, but there's truth to that. There's truth to that. We put a gate around this office for a very specific reason. I want you guys to hear this, because elders, elders are a gift to the church. They are. Man, bad elders are poison to a church. Poison to faith. Shipwreckers. And that is such a travesty, not because, I mean, yes, because it hurts your faith, and yes, because it hurts the church, but above all that, it is a travesty because that is not what Jesus is like. Pastors are called, we use the term pastor because they're shepherds, but we know they're not the shepherd. They're an under-shepherd, right? I like the term, I, I read this in a Lutheran theologian's book, that pastors are sheepdogs. They're just as dumb as the sheep are. <laughs> but they're communicating his will from the shepherd to the, to the flock. It's important to have good pastors because Jesus is a good pastor. Jesus is a good shepherd to you. And the ministry that happens from our elders to you, the ministry that happens from me as your pastor to you, should help you feel with skin and bones the love and care and leadership and caress of Jesus. And if it doesn't, something is misfiring. Something is not right. So let's talk about deacons. After describing the qualifications for elders, Paul gives a similar list for deacons, but this one reads a little more confusingly, especially depending on what translation you're reading it from. I'll share why I believe that is. There's only one Greek word from which we get the word deacon, diakonos, and this word literally means, I love this one, literally means table waiter, like your waiter at the restaurant, right? It often gets translated in the New Testament as minister or as servant. 
The office of the deacon is interesting because actually, just like the term shepherd-pastor, it refers generally to a spiritual gift that manifests in all the life of the church, right? We're all supposed to care for one another like shepherds, just like we're all supposed to minister to one another, serve one another, care for one another like that. But there is a difference between the general spiritual gift, the general spiritual instruction to holiness, that all the saints are being equipped for the work of ministry, diaconus, and the office of the deacon. The office of the deacon is someone whose service has been set apart, called out to a specific need to bless the church and serve the elders in a specific way. We see this kind of modeled out in Acts chapter 6. You can read about what, what I call the proto-elders and the proto-deacons because you're really reading about the 12 apostles and the seven. They don't have a name besides the seven. And they're not really functioning as elders and deacons, but they kind of give a model for how the elders and deacons function in local churches in the future. So if you remember in Acts chapter 6, the 12 apostles, the church is exploding. It's right after Pentecost. And a conflict arises in the church over how to best administrate the benevolence ministry. Imagine that, church people arguing over how to administrate something in the church. I've never heard heard of that piece, but apparently that does happen, that church people can argue over things. But anyway, they're arguing how we're how to best distribute the benevolence funds. And there's this moment where the apostles go, hey guys, we love you and this is important, but we don't have time for this. <laughs> like we're out preaching the gospel and seeing souls saved. Like we had 3,000 people get saved last Sunday. You know how long it took to baptize them? Like we don't have time for this, Right? And so they appoint seven people to meet this need. The seven are raised up godly men who administrate a specific ministry in the church because it meets a specific need of the church and frees up the 12 to go back to their primary calling of proclamation ministry, right? And so there's kind of this twofold piece to this office. It meets practical needs. It is service centric, but it also frees up the elders, the pastors, to do pastor work over and above administrative work. Not that any of the pastors are too good to do that work, but it's a matter of prioritizing time and organizing things rightly, right? So Paul brings this up, this, this idea of, man, we're all supposed to serve each other, but we need some designated servants for when needs come up. We all know that's true, right? Like it snowed this week, and at the end of the day, someone had to come shovel the driveway. And this is the kind of thing that happens where needs pop up, and the church needs people who are gifted and able and willing and joyfully excited to rise up and meet the need. So that the pastors aren't spending hours like desperately calling and writing, I guess they were writing letters back then, but trying to get stuff solved so they know, no, no, there are people who this is their thing. They love and serve our church, and so they can help us meet this need and keep the thing going. It's really important. Paul gives 11 total qualifications for deacons, but they're organized in a semi-confusing way. And this is because you'll notice as you read it, he speaks to deacons, and then he speaks to women or wives, depending on your translation, and then he speaks to deacons again. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time right here, but I do need to talk through this bit because this is a pretty controversial couple little verses. And, and, and the reason is this picks at a pretty specific theological debate in the church. And so I, I pre-apologize. You're going to have to just go on this little rabbit trail with me because this is kind of important. And it essentially comes down to some interpretive decisions are made about how to translate a couple words. 
in this text. And these interpretive decisions are really, really connected to a couple theological convictions you already have when you're stepping into the translation process. And so it comes down to some theologians believe that the office of the deacon is reserved just for men. And so because they believe the office of the deacon is reserved just for men, they come at this particular text. And when you read this word that we read as their wives, this word is gynecos, it actually, by the way, literally translates to women. It just means women. It does, there's not a possessive there, and it doesn't actually mean wives. But it can mean wives in the right context. So as a translator, what do you do with this word, right? It just says, and the women should be like this. And they go, well, if you already believe that women can't be in the office of the deacon, then it makes sense for in that context to mean wives. But if you do believe that women are allowed in the office of the deacon, it makes sense to read it as women, right? And so that creates a piece here that's just, it's a little hard to dig through. And so I'm going to let you guys know this piece. Convictionally, I believe the office of the deacon is open to women in the church who are godly and qualified. And I believe we have good evidence for that. And I'll tell you, but before I tell you that piece, I want you to hear this. This is what in theology we call an open-handed issue. Meaning you don't have to agree with me on this. I do want you to hear this because this is a conviction our elders are going to operate from here at Emmanuel. But I need you to know this is not like a breaking fellowship issue. This is not the kind of thing that's, I think, a big enough theological difference to cause us to divide over. But I do want you to hear it. So I think the most plain literal reading of this text is, the women likewise. And by the way, that word likewise is important because it shows a transition from one group to another. He transitions from elders to deacons with likewise, then transitions from deacons to female deacons with likewise. But I think the plain reading there of women is a better reading, and in several translations uh, preference that, depending on which one you read. But also we have in Romans 16, chapter 1, an example of Phoebe who's mentioned as a deaconess. I think it's important not to ignore that. And beyond that, if you look at the example of church history, we don't have any record, I mean, very, very few records of ordained female pastors before the 1800s. But we have records of ordained female deacons dating back to the first century. I mean, literally, some of the first martyrs of the church were some teenage deaconesses who were kidnapped and tortured to death by a Roman governor. That dates back to the first century, you know, within a generation of Christ being on earth. The church didn't have any problem with female deacons until the Reformation. Just, oops, anyway. <laughs> That's the theological conviction we're going to operate from as, as I go through this text. And again, if you disagree with me, that's fine. I'd love to get out with you and dig through this, and you don't have to agree with me on it. But uh, if, if we look through this, then if we look at this text from that perspective, what we essentially land on is Paul gives some instructions here that seem to be for male deacon candidates, for female deacon candidates, and then for all deacon candidates, which is just a little more confusing way of organizing it, but I think it's important. So look at this. He says, guys need to be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and they should be tested. Guys need to be, or gals need to be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. And all of them, he uses this phrase, husband of one wife. This is a kind of figure of speech that means faithful in your marriage and manage their children, their households well. Okay. So again, if you go down the list of qualifications here, it really does look like they pretty much just speak to the theological needs of this church. 
You know, Paul's going out of his way to say, here's all this stuff the Ephesian church is struggling with. When you put deacons in place, they need to be the kind of people that can navigate that stuff and still walk in holiness. They can be exemplary in their faith. They can actually guide people away from the sin, failures, struggles of the church toward holy living. That's really important. But there is an overarching qualification for the deacon that I think we need to talk about. And it's this idea that they are dignified. This is the Greek word graus, and it literally means respectful or worthy of emulation. This goes back to what we already talked about with elders. They need to be the kind of people that you can look to them and say, follow them as they follow Christ. And I want to once again tell you guys, this is one of the amazing gifts we have as a church here at Emmanuel. Because with a clear conscience, with joy in my heart, I can look at you guys and say, follow Bob as he follows Christ. Love Jesus like Adam loves Jesus. Look to David and look at the way he loves and serves and cares and love Christ like that. And it's true. Do all right. We have some, some deacons who you can emulate their faith because they're, they're godly people who love Jesus and are seeking to grow and walk in holiness. What, what an amazing gift we have as a church in that. I love that. The other piece I want to talk about here is this phrase that gets used in the first chunk of qualifications here. They must, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I think this speaks a little bit again to the difference between the offices, that, that they're, not, they're not called to be able to teach the Word, but they are called to have enough confidence in the Word, that they're, they're, they're secure in their faith. Their faith is not struggling. It's not, it's not easily bent or broken by winds and troubles in life. I think it's an important thing to look at. But the last thing I want to look at here with deacons is this idea. He says, those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I think we need to genuinely consider this phrase when we think about deacons. And the reason is this. Deacon ministry is inherently service-centered, right? These are the table waiters of the church. And because of that, deacon ministry is really physical, practical, hands-on, and in the life of the church. Deacons are the ones who are in people's houses fixing leaky pipes and raking leaves in backyards and showing up and giving people rides to the grocery store and coming to the building at 2 a.m. to mop up like backed up sewers. Like it's very practical, hands-on ministry that meets real needs of real people. And so what happens is if someone serves as a deacon, you as the church will grow to love and respect them, period. You just will. Because they're showing up and loving you and serving you, right? Like, it's hard to not like someone who's kind to you, who helps you out. Which, again, goes back to why we have to have a gate around the deaconate. Because the deacons will be respected people in the church. Because they get their hands dirty loving and serving people. And if you put people in that position who do not hold the faith with steadfastness, who are not, who are not dignified, worthy to be emulated then you will grow in love and respect for people that you can't emulate their faith. And it shipwrecks the church. And it leads people astray. And it's just as practically destructive as setting some nut job loose in the pulpit to preach heresy. Because you grow, you go, I mean, this dude's just so nice. He's so kind. He loves people so well. I want to be like him. And in being like him, you're walking away from Christ. 
It's so destructive. It's so dangerous. We have to be careful with the offices. We have to put gates around them and only let people in who, like it says, let them be tested. Make sure they can handle it. Make sure this is not going to be hurtful to the church. And guys, I go back to again. It's really important to make sure we have good deacons. Really important. Not just because of practical needs of the church. Yes, we need people to shovel and mop and clean things and help people. And that's very important. But guys, because Jesus serves you. Because he, he meets you as a servant and meets your needs. He came not to be served, but to serve. He gave his life as a ransom for you. He served you intimately and wonderfully. And bad deacons make his service look bad. They give an inaccurate picture of who he is and what he's done for you. So we need good deacons and we need good elders. We have to be careful with that. And guys, by the way, I want to be really quick when I say this. I think the Bible describes a church polity, a church governance, elders and deacons. I don't think it commands us that we have to govern our church that way. Churches that are more democratic or congregational, churches that are more business-styled or CEO-modeled, I think that's fine. I don't think that's sinful. Just me, I'm kind of dumb, and so I go, if the Bible gives a model, I'm going to go with that one. Because, you know, it's in the Bible, I'm just going to go with that one. I, know, I don't feel smart enough to come up with my own that's better than the one Jesus came up with. Uh, and again, I, and I, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I'm serious when I say that. I have, we, have, we have no judgment for churches that want to organize differently. I just think for our church, convictionally, the smartest thing, wisest thing for us to do is just look at the model handed to us and use it. It's in the scripture. It works. It emulates who Jesus is. It's beautiful. And I think we should do it. So, to that end, by the way, not only if you feel called maybe to lead the church, it's a good thing you should talk to the pastors about that. We'd love to develop you and raise you up. Because we need more deacons. So I would encourage you guys to prayerfully consider who in our midst would be a good deacon. We need some, what I'm going to call, deacon nominations. You know, in Acts 6, when they picked the seven, the apostles came to the church and said, pray and consider who could do this task. And the church brought the names to the apostles and they chose the seven from that list. They, you guys have the Holy Spirit and the authority in you. And so I would, I'm saying this seriously, I ask you guys, consider who might serve our church well as deacons and let us know. Find a pastor or a deacon and tell them a name. I think this person can serve as our church as a deacon really well. We're going to be collecting those for the next several weeks and praying through who God might raise up in our midst to fill out our deacon board a little more. So seriously, let us know. You can text, you can email, you can literally just tell us when you're in the building, whatever it is. But grab one of the pastors, grab one of the deacons, let them know a nomination you have, and we'll move from there and see what God does in our midst, which is cool. I'm going to land us with three really quick thoughts. Really quick thoughts. Ultimately, what I'm coming back to with this, and I know I was a little more teachy today, and so I apologize for that, but I do think this is important. Ultimately, what we've talked about today is the idea that God has given his church a gift and good leaders. Good leaders give us a good picture of who Jesus is. So having good leaders is a gift from Jesus. And I want to give you guys three thoughts that we can kind of walk out with this about how, that, how, how good leaders do that for us. And these will be really quick. I think good leaders remind us that we're not alone. Remind us that we're not seeking after Christ by ourselves, but we are a congregation. You know, shepherds care for the sheep, the whole group. And when we have good leaders over us, people that we can look to and go, man, honestly, 
I really want to learn how to love Jesus the way Craig loves Jesus. It reminds us that we're not doing this thing on our own, that we're not stuck on our own trying to figure this out. But God has put people around us, brothers and sisters, who are able to challenge us and call us up and develop us and even lead us toward Christ. What an amazing gift. I think beyond that, and this is connected to that, good pastors and deacons help us grow in holiness. Because we're not called to sit stationary as followers of Christ. We're, you know, Jesus said, you know, go and make disciples. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded of you. We're to grow in holiness. Our, our life and faith is not static. You don't, you don't accept the gospel and receive Christ and receive salvation and enter into the church through baptism and go, boom, box checked. I guess I'll see you in heaven, Jesus. Like, no, you're to continue growing in Christ-likeness and Christ-mindedness. And beloved, we do that together. And good leaders push you toward that. When you have godly leaders in front of you and you go, dang, Jim's marriage is a lot better than my marriage. <laughs> There's something about the way he loves Jesus and the way that affects the way he loves us. I, I, I want to I see that in my own life. And there is something about the way David loves strangers that I don't do. It pushes you to grow in holiness when God has put good leaders in front of you. Also because they help you divide the word and push you to what God says. And they help you they help you serve as Christ served. I'm telling you what, there's few things as embarrassing as seeing a bunch of deacons stack up chairs while you're standing there yapping, right? It's good. It pushes us to grow in holiness, grow in dependence on Christ. And lastly, offices remind us, good leaders, they remind us that we're going somewhere. The church is not stationary. Christ has given his church a mission. Not just to glorify him, but to take the kingdom to the ends of the earth. You know, when leaders stand up and tell us to get out of our chairs and get out of our comfort zones and do something to the glory of God, it pushes us. Pushes us to move. Pushes us to, to take the, the gift that's been given to us, the word that's been preached to us, and bring it to the people we love, our neighbors, our community. These are gifts, guys. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. We're going to end. And, and really, what I'd love for you guys to do is we take a few minutes to pray and sing. I'm going to ask you guys to consider a couple of things. The first one is deadly practical. It's just this. I mean, is God calling you to serve in one of these offices? If so, you should think about that and pray about that and tell our pastors. We need some good deacons. And listen, all of you could potentially be a deacon, so pray about it. Talk to the pastors about it. Talk to the deacons about it. Ask the Lord if he might be calling you to a new step in obedience and service. But I also want you to take a few moments and consider how Christ has shown himself to you through the physical manifestation of his church. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about here. The church of Christ shows Christ to Christ's people. It happens through good leaders. It happens through our gathering. It happens through our time together. It happens through the liturgy and the things we do. I want you to take a moment and consider, man, what is the picture of Jesus that's been given to you by your experience of church? How accurate is it? What, what needs to be modified there? Talk to Jesus. See what he says to you in that. And then we'll end our time in communion. Sound good? Pray with me, church, and we'll do some work. Jesus, thank you for how you love us. Thank you for how you care for us. Lord, you're really good. We really love you. And we 
we thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you for your, your kindness, Lord, to shepherd and care for us, to lead us. Your kindness to serve us, to come down to our level and meet us in the muck and mire. God, you are such a good shepherd. And you are such a good deacon. You lead us and minister to us so well. Lord, help us to do the same for each other. Help us to grow in Christ's likeness, to grow in our obedience to our call. Help us to mold our church to be more like you. Guide us and lead us, Lord. Give us clear eyes for things we aspire. Church, take a few minutes to do the work you need to do with Christ, and then we'll continue on time.